Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Nate Silver, the editor-in-chief of 538.com and an expert on American politics and elections. Nate joins us now from New York City, in fact. Nate, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Anything else I should say for your bio? What, what, else, uh, what else do people need to know about you? That's all they really need to know. Okay. All right. Uh, good. Well, I mean, then, okay. yeah. No, tell me what. People, I mean, plug the side. People should go to 538 for, for all the, uh, the best electoral analysis out there. Um, but yeah, I think people listening to this probably already, we hope, are familiar with 538 or familiar-ish at least. The second best after Slate.com. But um, 538 does have some excellent NBA analysis. Too. In the top two. In, In the, the top, top two. two. We'll put it like that. So I wanted to talk a little bit kind of about our current political moment and uh, Judge Kavanaugh and the upcoming elections. And then I wanted to move to some bigger picture stuff about the way the media covers elections and polls and so on. So so let me just ask you first to get this out of the way. You wrote a piece this morning. It's now Thursday afternoon. It kind of appears like Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed this weekend unless I think something else happens uh, or comes out. What have you kind of made of the polls about Kavanaugh, either both about about what what voters make of him and also about what effect, if any, this whole this whole debacle has had on um, the views of the two parties heading into the elections in four and a half weeks? I think from a from a top line perspective, number one, Kavanaugh himself is fairly unpopular, although a lot of things Republicans do are fairly unpopular. So is he more unpopular than Trump? Um or the health care bill or whatever else, maybe not. Um, but his n- numbers seem to be gravitating toward where the generic ballot is roughly, where he's underwater by by six or seven or eight or nine points, depending on what poll you look at. However, in the top line numbers, I think you can argue there's been some good news for Republicans, at least in the Senate. So, you know, I mean, the Senate, it's much more granular. It comes down to individual individual races. And we have seen in the past 48 hours, two polls showing Heidi Heitkamp down by double digits in that Senate race in North Dakota. Um, She's the Democratic incumbent in North Dakota, we should just say. The Democratic incumbent, who we should say is someone who um, beat her polls by a lot in 2012. Um, But still, if Heidi Heitkamp loses, then all of a sudden, Democrats need to win three GOP seats plus hold all their own other seats. And so all of a sudden, um, Texas and Tennessee aren't luxuries for Democrats, but become necessities. And that makes the math a lot trickier. You know, how much of that is related to Kavanaugh, I'm not sure. Um, interestingly enough, she just came out before we began taping and said she's going to vote no on Kavanaugh. Um, Kavanaugh is fairly popular in North Dakota based on the polling there. Um, but but overall, the GOP Senate outlook looks um, as good as it has or better than it has since we began running a Senate forecast a month or so ago. The House a little bit more ambiguous. Um, we look at the generic ballot that has tightened maybe a tick to around eight points from nine points. We can talk about why nine versus eight versus seven is different. The district by district polls are still pretty bad for the GOP in the House. And I would not say have appreciably improved. And so, you know, I'm giving kind of a long-winded answer. You know, it's a weird case where, like, I think the conventional wisdom is half right. Um, The conventional wisdom being, hey, there's a big surge now in GOP enthusiasm that has kind of been a game changer potentially in the outlook. You know, I think that hypothesis is more or less exaggerated when it comes to the House, but has enough validity in the Senate with Heidkamp to some extent, some of the other red states. So Tennessee, there was a Fox News poll that came out that showed um, showed Marsha Blackburn gaining a couple of points relative to the previous poll there. Um, but so I, it's kind of a split 
verdict. And that's kind of true to selection in general. It's like there are a lot of like complicated narratives that are like kind of half true instead of having like a big overall um, cohesive moment, I suppose. This is pure speculation, honestly, uh, obviously. But if um, if Kavanaugh goes on to get confirmed this weekend, I, I presume we may be in a sort of strange situation where him getting confirmed would maybe be better politically in the short term for Democrats and him getting voted down. You'd see continued Republican enthusiasm and anger about um, what they perceive to be the unfair treatment of him. And so this could perversely be kind of a good result for Democrats, um, even if uh, in the long term it's um, not the result uh, Democrats would prefer to see for the country. If you're going to cash in political chips, then a Supreme Court pick is a pretty good way to do it, a pretty high value, you know, a pretty high value prize that you're winning, although the GOP could have nominated another conservative if they had rewound the tape. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, you know, in general, in elections, you don't have your cake and eat it, too, meaning the more you gain policy wise, particularly when you try to push forward policies whose popularity is is ambiguous to slightly negative um, then voters want to balance and you pay a price for that. And so it's a trade-off between making legislative gains and between and between how you do it the upcoming election. Kavanaugh is not a policy. He's a Supreme Court, um, potential Supreme Court judge. And so maybe it's in a slightly different category. But but my intuition would be that um, that both parties do face a trade-off here, that grievance and anger <laughs> um, is a powerful motivating force in politics and can be a bit longer lasting sometimes than praise and excitement over how a party would do. Um, so that's my, my, my intuition, I suppose. Um, and I think it's an intuition justified in the kind of the political science of, of how elections tend to work, especially midterms, which are a lot about balancing, but we'll see. I mean, I do think it's like right on the threshold where um, with a month or so to go that, that it might have faded a bit in the memory by election day. If this were two weeks from now when like literally all these seats were having early voting, it might be a bit different. But yeah, so so whatever gains the GOP has made are modest enough that like, you know, a string of three or four good polls next week um, could be enough to reverse them potentially. With that said, it's been a long time since Heidi Heitkamp had a good poll in North Dakota. Um, our model was conservative because it was saying, hey, look, we don't have a lot of polling. We think that in a blue leaning environment that Democratic incumbents should win. But, you know, it's been I think February was the last poll to show her ahead. Her campaign has not released any internal polls to really combat the narrative. And so and so she looks like she's in a fair amount or more than a fair amount of trouble. Right. And and as you say, if uh, Democrats would then need to pick up three seats and even if they can pick up the ones in Arizona and Nevada, which a lot of Democrats are hopeful that they will, in fact, pick up, they still need to then pick up one in uh in Tennessee or Texas, uh, the latter being an especially tough climb, and hold on to other seats like New Jersey and Florida. So I guess this is why I'm looking at your forecast now. The odds of Democrats taking the Senate has fallen in your forecast to 23 percent. Yeah, which is which is a lot bigger than zero. Um, but we're you know we're getting to the point now where, well, I'm not going to quite say. I was going to say we're at the point now where the polls would have to be off. For Democrats to win the Senate, I think it's not quite true because Tennessee is pulling close enough to a toss up, right, where if they kind of won all the toss ups and lean D's, then, you know, a bit generous to call Tennessee a toss up, but close enough. So it's not like baked in yet or anything. But but, you know, we've thought for a long time that the Senate map is very difficult for Democrats, because once you begin to solve a problem, just a new one crops up, given how much exposure you have. Um, so, you know, last week we saw polls shifting toward Bill Nelson, the Democratic Senate incumbent 
in Florida. And they've been pretty consistent showing him now with a lead of anywhere from one to five, six, seven points. Um, but then, you know, it looks like North Dakota's not going their way. It looks like New Jersey. We're skeptical, but at least something they have to sweat. Um, you know, Montana seems to have tightened, uh, you know, so it's like it's very difficult when you just have like literally three times as much exposure on your map. And when races can be localized, it's very difficult to 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 walk that tightrope. So in the House, it's it's essentially reversed. You have Democrats about a three and four chance to win the House in your model. And it sort of feels like the House has been. Broadly speaking, a pretty similar story all year. The generic ballot has kind of gone back between, you know, six and 10 points um, for Democrats. And you've had them about three and four chance to win for a long time. It, does, does this feel like an especially stable election um, for, you know, midterm election? Or are you seeing anything this year that you think has changed? How would you kind of look at the House in 2018? No, this has been the House forecast has been one of the more stable forecasts, I think, that we've ever had. Um Part of that is the nature of the House where you get data from all 435 districts and it comes in a bit at a time in a piecemeal way. Um, generic ballot polls can shift the entire forecast to some extent. But like, as you noted, they've kind of gone back and forth between six points and 10 points, not really consistently gravitated in one direction or another. Um, you know, what we have seen, though, in the past month or so is that we have seen a lot more district by district polling, in part because of our friends at the Upshot having polled. Um, a few dozen districts now, and that polling is kind of consistent with with the generic ballot. In fact, the polling might be actually a point or two better for Democrats than the generic ballot. Um, but we have seen like more evidence to like confirm what we expected or what our model expected based on fundamentals and the generic ballot and fundraising data before. Now you have seen in district by district polling the impact of okay, here's what it looks like when you're in a D plus eight roughly national environment when you're also this is overlooked in an environment where incumbents are not very popular. Um, so if you have like a weaker incumbency advantage, then that can explain why Heidi Heitkamp doesn't have a lot of loyalty in North Dakota. On the flip side, there are lots of Republican incumbents who um, 20 years ago, when you had a bigger incumbency advantage, would be protected from a wave who are who are not now. And so, you know, and so the cross currents from incumbency, the lack of a big incumbent advantage, hurting Democrats in the Senate and helping them in the House it at least tells a fairly consistent story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. So just to take a step back, uh, after the 2016 election, there was a ton of criticism of of people who do what you do, which is, well, both of pollsters and people who do what you do, which is kind of look at polls or look at polls, among other things, to make um, political predictions or make political analysis. Do, do you feel now with hindsight, I guess this is a two-part question, one is that how do you feel the polls were or were not 
incorrect about 2016. And two, your models, which, you know, you had one for 2016 as well, which incorporates polls and a bunch of other things. And, you know, all these things, all these different models, most of them predicted Hillary Clinton to win. So how do you kind of look at your model and whether it was that the the model was wrong in some way or that, you know, in fact, the model was fine, but, you know, weird things happen. Sometimes events that are not um, likely to happen do happen. So how do you look at those two things now, two years later? So I think our model did awesome in 2016. I think it's probably did better in 2016 than 2012. Um, the reason being is because it detected a lot of important but fairly subtle qualities that led it uh, the model to believe that Trump had a reasonably high chance. So I was thinking it's 29%. You can round off to 30% on election day. One of those being the fact that you had a lot of correlation from state to state. So the fact that Trump overperformed his polls in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan and Pennsylvania, he didn't win Minnesota, but still beat his polls there. That's not a coincidence. It's all about the white working class vote and how Clinton's lead was not very robust because all you needed was um, was for her to underperform among one group, white working class voters, and that was enough to topple her electoral college position. But maybe I'm being a little bit too detail oriented. I mean, basically, you know, our goal is to make forecasts, is to handicap the race and to lay odds. Um, there is a lot of work in in setting the odds correctly. And a forecast that gives um, Trump a three in ten or a one in three or a one in four chance is a lot different than one that gives him, say, a one in one hundred chance. And so, if you were actually making bets based on our forecast in Vegas um, or in a prediction market, and you would say these guys have Trump much higher than um, prediction markets do, than other forecasts do, than the conventional wisdom do, and so you would have bet a lot on Trump. And I think you would have bet a lot on Trump because we think a lot about uncertainty and how we design the model about the statistical characteristics of polling error and so forth. Um, you know, we had identified early on this possibility that the Electoral College would help Trump instead of hurt him. That's what our model consistently showed from September onward. And so, you know, so for us, this is a case where we think the model added a lot of value. Now, is the average reader out there going to think that? I don't know. But like, in some sense, I don't really care. You know, we're trying to do the best forecast that we can. Um it's something where it's fairly technical material, which is broadcast to a very wide audience. And that means like people are encountering mathematically complex concepts that like they might not encounter as much day to day. But all we can do is build the best forecast we can. I think our thoughtfulness about how we design models was reflected in the fact that we gave Trump a much higher chance than other people did. And so I don't know. I mean, you know, let me ask you then, how is your model different this year, if at all? Or I mean, I know these things are complicated. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on on how the model works, but is your model different in some way? And I don't mean just because Trump won. I mean, just generally, how have, how have you changed it? How would you define a difference between now and 2016 or models, I should say? I mean, there's not really. I mean, philosophically, there's no difference because, again, we think that like, first of all, you know, I mean, look, if you have a model where you have a one in 100 chance of something occurring, yeah, maybe you got unlucky, but then you probably ought to rethink things. Um, the flip side of that is you shouldn't be doing like, a lot of rethinking when a one in three or a three in 10 chance comes through. Um, it's almost like irresponsible um, and kind of not true to the whole point of like spending all this time thinking about, boy, how do we model and measure uncertainty? And that's like a lot harder than estimating like, you know, to say, oh, Clinton is ahead two points in the state. That's a lot easier actually than saying what the margin of error in a real world setting would tend to be and how that error is correlated from state to state. So philosophically, there's not as much of a rethink in terms of presentation. 
we show the numbers a bit differently, where now we'll say instead of 75%, we'll say three, say three in four, although you can see the percentage in parenthesis. Um, that is meant to remind people that like the one in four chance is supposed to happen one in four times. You know, we think that also avoids confusion between vote shares and probabilities. So people might say, okay, Clinton 70%, Trump 30%, that means she's going to win by 40 points. No, it means she'll win seven out of 10 times. So, so the communication strategy is a little bit different. We think more about like the fact that people read headlines. So if you can have a headline that's bolder and then the analysis is more cautious, well, you know, a lot of people encounter your headlines, so you're responsible for that too. But like, but we think basically that like a lot of people got the story of 2016 a lot wronger than 538. And we also think that the post-election narrative about kind of polls and forecast was also just, you know, the same people who are wrong about the election and wrong for the wrong reasons were wrong about kind of how the polls did and what the forecast meant. Or at least, you know, again, I don't mean to like, it's hard to lump all the forecasts together because there are some models that I would criticize, but the ones that had Trump with a relatively high chance, like ours, to some extent, like the upshots where they had him at 15%, which is lower than ours, but but still, you know, a 15% is far from an unlikely occurrence. Um, I think the criticism wasn't really warranted there. And the kind of proof of it is in the fact that like, on average, the polls were about as accurate as they have been historically. Um, so I think people think of, oh, this is the year when the polls were way off. No, they were off by um, by two or three points nationally and by three or four points in the average swing state. If you go back and look at how accurate polls have been on average since 1972, which is how our model is calibrated, polls are off by two or three points nationally and three or four points in the average swing state. How worried are you, especially in some swing states, that the polling error had to do with um – Underrepresentation in the polls of voters at lower education levels, and um, how worried are you that that's going to repeat itself going forward? Because as we've seen American politics increasingly kind of polarized along lines of education, um, especially with white voters um, of higher and lower education levels increasingly going in different directions, how worried are you that pollsters are still making that mistake and not waiting for education, and that this will repeat itself to some degree in 2018? I'm I'm worried about that, and I'm equally worried about pollsters overcompensating and or potentially missing sources of error that would lead them to underestimate how Democrats would do. Um, one of the more robust findings in our years of doing this is that polling error is not directionally very predictable, meaning will the overall forecast be off? Yeah, very easily could be. It will be off to some degree. It's just a matter of how far it will be off. Um but it's about equally likely to be off in either direction. And so, you know, so the fact that, for example, in California, Hillary Clinton beat her polls by seven points, which is more than she um, underperformed her polls by in Wisconsin, which was like, I think, five points. Um, the importance of that is that there are seven or eight or nine competitive House races in California. Democrats polling has been tepid there. If that's a polling error, that could be an example of where Democrats actually pick up a few more seats in the House than projected by the polls. And so, you know. So I try not to like one thing, if you've seen kind of 530 over the years, we probably do less and less and less trying to critique or pick apart or praise for that matter, particular polls. And it's more of a macro view, right? It's saying, I'm going to leave it up to the pollsters to figure out what adjustments they need to make. They have fairly strong incentives to be accurate. We know historically that sometimes you have the same error a couple years in a row, but at least as often they wind up overcompensating and missing in the in the other direction. And so, you know, I don't know. I mean, to me, it clearly seems like you ought to wait by education if you're a pollster. That seems really obvious to me. Um, with that said, if there are a few pollsters who don't do it, then 
then they've probably spent a lot more time looking at that part of the problem than I have. And so, you know, so I appreciate the consensus of, of different methods that are included in a polling average like 538s. So for a long time, you had somewhat of a critique of political journalists and the way they wrote about politics and the way they wrote about polls. I'm curious, one, just if you can kind of lay out what that critique was for people and um, two, how relevant you think it is today and whether you think political journalism, not the type of of journalism you do um, or people at places like 538 do, but kind of more broadly in television and newspaper journalism do and how much you think it's been corrected. I mean, the basic critique is that there is a lot of groupthink among um, among journalists that involves a lot of cherry picking and confirmation bias and is is often quite divorced from like the underlying reality of a race. That's kind of the the you know number one critique. The secondary critique might be that hey, um, that there's a lot of innumeracy. So with respect to explaining probabilities, margins of error, um, concepts like the electoral college and so forth, and so and so that tends to color things as well. Um, but you know, I mean, I'm not sure that like that that critique has lessened at all. In fact, I think, you know, again, one of the things about 2016 that that annoys me when people take shots at pollsters or forecasters is like, if you had surveyed the average New York Times beat reporter or Washington Post will be inclusive here, you know, Politico, et cetera, and ask them, what do you think the chances are that Trump will win? Are they north or south of 30%? I am positive that the large majority of them would say way south of 30%. And so, you know, in all the cases where... um where the polls have been wrong, quote unquote, or at least a few points off. In general, conventional wisdom has been equally, if not more off. And so I'm not sure that's corrected itself. I do think you have like more, more numeracy overall. I think journalists now are smarter about not looking at just one poll and waiting for two or three polls to confirm a trend. Although with this Kavanaugh thing, this feels a little bit more old school where like people are very quick to kind of jump on this Republican surge or excuse me, Republican enthusiasm surge narrative. And so maybe cherry picking a little bit right there. Um, but, you know, look, I think fundamentally that there is an opposition between the way 538 <laughs> looks at races where oftentimes like they're um, oftentimes it's a kind of a slog, right? A little bit of data comes in at a time. The changes are not all that large from day to day. I mean, I think it's fundamentally pretty different from um, from the up and down kind of horse race method of reporting. Uh, and I think also the numeracy level has, has improved quite a lot. Um, I think sometimes things are in a sophomoric stage. I think sometimes there are also cases where like the concepts we're explaining are quite technical. And so even for a smart audience of readers, then, um, you know, you get into these very esoteric debates about like modeling approaches and they kind of are played out in the context of people having these very strong priors about kind of what they want to see happen in the election and what they think is happening. So it's all a little bit weird, <laughs> I think. But like, but yeah, that critique has not really has not dis- dissipated that much. You know, again, with that said, um, the average level of if you want to call it data journalism methods um, at the Times and at the Post and at the Journal is a lot is a lot higher than it was 10 years ago. Certainly. You mentioned the Times a couple of times where uh, you used to work. Um, it seems to me especially from following you on social media, that you have some specific critiques of the way the Times covers politics. Is that fair? I have critiques of how the Times covers elections. I have... uh, Which is what? Which is, I think they are way too reliant. I mean, first of all, in 2016, 
they were very, very subscribed to the idea that Clinton couldn't lose and couldn't lose because the Electoral College favored her. Um, you know, why were they subscribed to that? Number one, I think the Times um, is not skeptical enough about insider narratives, and that's probably what they heard from their sources, and they didn't critique them as much. You know, number two, you know, there is kind of this firewall between um, between the upshot and the rest of the newsroom there. I think that's been lessened a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's a very kind of narrative-driven place, and they want to take what they see out there and, and tell stories with it and stories that a lot of the time are are oversimplified in their campaign coverage. You know, apart from the horse race coverage there, then I think the way they handled um, the email stuff and the Comey letter in particular was was hard to defend. I think the way they minimized the Russia investigation is hard to defend. I think their post-election handling of it, you know, Trump keeps saying they apologized. They didn't. I think they should have apologized and actually gone back and re-examined all these different aspects of their coverage in the in the same way that they did with respect to the Iraq war. With that said, I think the Times is the best newsroom in the world overall, or at least one of the two or three best. And so I very much appreciate its coverage of the White House. I think their midterm coverage, I haven't had too many critiques of it necessarily. So, you know, but they they really, really badly screwed up 2016. And I think they screwed up after 2016 by not kind of owning up to the screw up. But, you know, still, it's the best news organization in the world, although the Post would have a good argument. Did you feel that the type of journalism you wanted to do when you were there was not welcomed by the people who determined politics coverage there? The Times is a place with a lot of different fiefdoms. And I think there were lots of people who were big supporters of 538. Um, It was never really integrated right it was i mean there were like literally some um some incidents where i remember when we were in the new hampshire primary in 2012 i guess it was right where kind of the 538 people come into the room in whichever you know hotel where all the journalists are huddled and it like a little bit is like a little bit of a high school kind of lunchroom cafeteria setting where it's like people don't want to talk to like the, the whatever you want to call us data journalists or whatever um and so you know so there were lots of people um, at all levels of the times that were supportive of 538, but there was definitely like a, a, a rivalry. I would say definitely like the traditional reporters um, were, with some but not many exceptions, not all that helpful. Um, and in some ways, that's fine. I mean, you know, we got along great with the graphics folks. We got along well with the with the sports desk. And there were, again, like lots of rank and file um, people at the times who really liked what 538 does. Um, there were support from some top editors, but it was never like there was never much hope of like of integration <laughs> of kind of 538. I mean, it was always going to be like, you're going to have, we're one section and they're another section. There's not like a, there's not like a free flowing door between them, right? They were kind of cordoned off from, from one another. I want to just turn to 2020 for a minute before we, before we depart, which is that I think the, correct me if you if you think my kind of uh, setting the stage is is wrong in some way which is that democrats are obviously going to nominate someone in in a little under 2 years and i think the debate sort of about that is going to be are they going to nominate someone who is broadly speaking a centrist to appeal to kind of middle american voters some of the obama trump type voters and other people will say no they're going to nominate someone who's going to excite the base the way um We've seen with some of these uh, some of these candidates who've who've won uh, by running more kind of left wing or liberal campaigns than uh, we've seen in the past in some congressional districts or people like Andrew Gillum, who's the Democratic nominee for governor of Florida. 
the, I think this is going to be kind of the mainstream media narrative. When you look at the electorate, the Democratic electorate, and then the electorate that will vote in 2020, which is everybody, how much do you think that that kind of dichotomy is helpful to think about the choices the Democrats have? And how much do you think it's it's not helpful and it's kind of a simplified narrative of how we look at primary choices? I mean, part of what you do and what I do is we figure out like when simplifying the narrative is helpful to our understanding of something or when it isn't, you know? I mean, I, I remember a lot of things we published, other people published in the 2016 GOP primary about about the establishment and the non-establishment lanes. And, you know, I'm not sure if that was helpful or not. You know, in some ways, if you look at actual voter level preferences, you would have lots of people who would say, oh, yeah, um, Trump is my first choice and Marco Rubio is my second choice and Ben Carson's my third choice, right? And that might not really make any sense to like you or I necessarily, but voter preferences are more complex. Um, with that said, you know, I think there are really kind of three roughly equal parts of the Democratic electorate, one of which are white progressives or white leftists, you might call them. I'm careful about how I'm using the term liberal these days. So, you know, white progressives, let's call it. Then you have kind of white establishment slash moderate voters, and then you have non-white voters. And roughly speaking, it's about a third, a third, a third as far as the overall share of the primary electorate. And you have to win two out of those three groups to win the nomination, roughly. Um, so I do think sometimes that like it's easy for um, for reporters to forget about, I think, actually like the, the non-white voters in the electorate and the importance in the primary of the black vote and the Hispanic vote. Um, you know, maybe that explains the success of someone like Ocasio-Cortez, who did very well, both with white progressives and with Hispanic um, and black voters in New York. And so, you know, so that's where I think sometimes the uh, the analysis becomes a bit limiting. But but for sure, I mean, I think the ideological divisions of the Democratic Party are a lot clearer than, than they used to be. Um, it certainly seems like there is a lot of energy on the left. I mean, I think one of the most remarkable stats from 20, 2016 is that big, gigantic split between how people under 30 voted and people over 30 voted, where it was like literally something like Hillary won um, over 30s by like 70-30 and Bernie won under 30s by 70-30. I mean, it's very rare to see an age split that sharp in a party. And you would, I think, certainly assume that you would rather be the rising up and coming population um, than the older aging out population. And so, and so, you know, that would seem to foretell the left being very viable. Um, with that said, you could have a situation where you have six or seven or eight um, progressive candidates and and two or three establishment candidates. And so that could actually, just by, by the way the numbers work out, um, put things on a more level playing field, potentially. I mean, I do think when you have a playing field this large, one of the lessons we learned in 2016, and by the way, if you're listening to me and saying, oh, these guys aren't are proud of how they did in 2016, we're proud of our general election coverage. We thought our coverage of the GOP primary was pretty awful. but um, but there is like kind of literally an element of chaos, I think, when you have eight or 10 or 12 or 15 candidates running and it kind of is like trying to predict where like the four ball will end up when you kind of have a break on the pool table. It's like it's like literally a little bit chaotic. Is there something that you're particularly that you would be particularly worried about if you were someone who wanted to see Trump defeated in 2020 that Democrats could do um, in the primary or that? something about the Democratic candidate um, in terms of positions they could take that you think would be toxic um, for running against Trump in terms of moving left, I should say. I mean, I don't know. I, I think, you know, my prior is still that over overall you want to run to the center and everything's being held equal. Then that's the way that you that you perform better. 
You know, I think I think it's going to be very hard for establishment Democrats to make that argument, given what happened to Clinton. You know, part of me thinks that, hey, since kind of every other kind of constituency has had its turn in office, maybe it's time for the left to have its turn. I'm not sure if that'd be persuasive electorally or not necessarily. Um, but no, I think the problems are more are more structural, which is that Democrats have a system which is extremely proportional. So one um, one vote, one delegate t- times some multiple or minus some multiple. And also they have a very large potentially um, playing field. There are not winner take all states in the Democratic primaries like you had in the GOP. So I think the chance of a nomination, which has to be decided at the convention, um, is quite high. And that could be damaging potentially when you have to wait that long to know who your nominee is. You know, you could actually easily have superdelegates on the second ballot become involved. And so, you know, I think they may have made a mistake in, in not structuring things in a way that allowed winners or leaders or frontrunners to gain more momentum to avoid a potential brokered convention. Do, do you feel that the conventional, well, what do you think the conventional wisdom is on Trump getting reelected? And um, do you think the conventional wisdom, whatever you deem it to be, is uh, is right or wrong? I mean, my conventional wisdom is that it's about 50-50. I think that's probably in line with what most people think. But remember, 50-50 is like actually a pretty big hedge from the fact that incumbents ordinarily get reelected. I forget what it is, two thirds or three quarters of the time, roughly. Right. And so and so it's saying that, like, yeah, um, things are different enough with Trump where um, where we're lowering him to a 50-50 shot from 70-30 before. Um, What's weird, though, is like if you're kind of deliberately um, myopic and just kind of say, let's kind of just look, forget the Trump factor, just kind of look at which parties are winning, then things have in some ways are fairly normal, right? Where usually when you have no incumbent running, you have a very close election. So 1960 or 2000, again, you kind of have what's essentially a tie in 2016. Um, then typically in the midterm year, it goes badly for the president's party. It appears it will go badly for the GOP in the House. They are in a... Um, frankly, rather fortunate position in the Senate where um, the states that are up for election this year are overwhelmingly states where you already have Democratic incumbents, but like, but still consistent with having a fairly bad midterm. And then the third part of that is that then the president recovers and wins a medium-sized second term, right? So if you're kind of looking at history in a very, if you take Trump's name out of it, then then things have been like kind of shockingly normal in some ways. Um, but that would predict that he's a favorite to win re-election. You know, I'm not sure I can go quite that far. I mean, first of all, I think um, because of Kavanaugh and the midterms and because Mueller has been very quiet lately. The Mueller probe, which I was not skeptical of the probe itself, but skeptical of if there was momentum there. I mean, that had been getting pretty darn bad for Trump at the end of <laughs> at the end of August and September when you had Manafort and Cohen pleading guilty. You know, again, I don't know how to like it's Mueller probe is a frustrating story for 538. We're not quite sure like how we kind of add as much value on that story, frankly. But just as an observer of politics, the the Mueller probe is like more than like a marginal detail that will, you know, that will affect how the next two years play out potentially. Nate Silver is the editor in chief of 538.com where you can go to get all kinds of information about politics and sports. And, uh, and what else, what else can they go to get information on Nate? Science, you know, that's our third, our third vertical right now. Um, but yeah, we got lots of, lots of college football projections up right now. We'll have NBA projections soon. Um, you know, I really enjoy the day after the election. I can uh, just concentrate on sports for for a few months. Yeah, this baseball season. This is your time, uh, anyway. It's uh, and baseball. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to uh, great to have you. Definitely. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I have to ask is produced by Max Jacobs. 
Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Special thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show.